This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast. A story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee Gerwin. Last episode, we learned a little about a man, his family, and the circumstances surrounding his disappearance on a quiet August day nearly 20 years ago. We learned that Cole Atkins mysteriously vanished from the place where he worked, a company called Revolver Industries, and that Revolver is a company that is shrouded in its own bit of mystery. We learned that Cole was a scientist, and a family man, and a man whose life was struck with tragedy in the loss of his young son. We learned that Cole's cousin, Jamie Lloyd, and lifelong best friend, has had severe doubts on the simplicity of the answers that the police offered, and that Cole himself was not as simple as we may have thought. We talked about a missing videotape, the possible key to cracking this whole thing, and most of all, we talked about how the disappearance of Cole Atkins is a series of unknowns, in which the only real certainty lies in the fact that no one really knows where Cole went, or who was involved and what really happened on that hot day in late August, back in 1997. That's the question, isn't it? What happened, and why, and where, and how? Like, how is it that he was able to vanish without a real shred of evidence? Even evidence of the anecdotal kind, which is typically useless and mostly, well, anecdotal. But what about the videotape? Did it really exist? If so, has anyone seen it? And do the cops know about it? Those are some of the questions I hope to answer on today's episode. I'd like to start where the Edmonton Police Service left off. Because of the nature of the case, and by nature I really mean the complete and utter lack of any real progress, the Cole Atkins case is filed under an unassigned cold case, which under law means that most of the evidence and case files are a matter of public record. Cole's keycard was swiped into the parking lot at 8.47 on the morning of August 20th. Witnesses, co-workers, though their names are never specified, saw him enter the lab where he normally worked at 8.55, less than 10 minutes later. I mean, really, this only strengthens the mystery behind that 20 minutes of missing time in the parking lot that would take place nearly 8 hours from then. Cole worked in the lab, leaving only twice both times to go to the bathroom, and both times he went straight to and from the bathroom directly. Cole took his lunch into the lab, at his desk, where he apparently just nibbled on a ham sandwich. Whether or not ham was the actual type of sandwich was never verified. I'm kidding, but the police report does have a pretty remarkable account of what happened. There's a tiny asterisk in in some of the points I made. I asked a cop friend of mine who said that oftentimes an asterisk will signify something important like first-hand account or video evidence or something like that. The rest of the transcript reads like a pretty basic day for anyone. No one, not one person they talk to, mentions that Cole was acting strangely or behaving in a way that would lead them to believe anything was wrong. Besides Martin, who we talked to in last week's episode. Going over this, I'm reminded of a quote I read when I was in college. It's from King George II, and it was written in his diary on July 4, 1776, the day the American colonies declared independence. It read, Nothing important happened today. That quote is actually not real, at least according to Arnold Hunt, a curator at the British Library. 
He claims that King George never kept a diary. But I wonder, if Cole Atkins had kept a diary, what would he have written in it? What was running through his mind the day of, the night before, the week? Was his mind at ease? Was he troubled with something? Was he scared? Or was he planning to leave? Or maybe it would say nothing. Maybe he, like King George, had no idea that today was a day where not only something happened, but what did happen was in fact very important. To answer this, I went to talk to the only person who may possibly know what Cole was thinking, the person who would understand Cole the best, a person who loved him and cherished him as much as the two children they shared. I talked to Cole's wife, Carrie, about Cole and really what might have been going on in his head. Hey, how are you? Good. I just finished lunch with my daughter. Oh, it's Roxy, right? How is she? She's doing well. Have you told her about this? About what I'm doing? I have, yes. And? Well, I'm not sure she shares my enthusiasm. I think she would prefer to leave the past in the past. Carrie smiled and sort of moved the conversation along. She seemed both hesitant and eager at the same time. Not nervous, but maybe a little anxious. It was her who brought up Cole first. And honestly, I was thankful. Talking about a woman's husband who mysteriously disappeared isn't exactly small talk. So, I assume you have other things to get to. What do you want to ask me about Cole? Yeah, well, for starters, what was he like in the days or even the morning of? Like, was there something going on? Did you guys fight? Or was he distant? Anything, really. Well, like I told you before, since Robbie's death, Cole wasn't the same. And in the days leading up to it, looking back, maybe things weren't quite right with him. In what way? Well, at the time, I'm not sure I saw it. Well, maybe I see it now that it happened, but he seemed a little quiet and distant. So, do you think it's possible that he... Left? Yeah. No. But not because of me. Because of Roxy. I don't think he would ever do that. I mean, he could leave me, sure, but not Roxy. He loved both of his kids. She took a second here. As I looked into her eyes, I could see the pain I was causing. So I decided to move on. Alright, well, enough Cole. Can we talk about you and how you were feeling during this time? Before or after Cole left? Let's start with before. Well, I, was, I was fine. It felt like we were finally getting our life back together. It had been a long time since Bobby's death, and we were a family. A real family. I mean, it was tough. It had taken a long time to feel normal again, but I felt like we had made so much progress. I'd like to say it was frustrating, but that seems unfair. The whole thing sort of seems unfair, doesn't it? I don't know. I'm not sure I believe in that. Believe in what? Whether life is fair or unfair. I think stuff just happens, and sometimes you bring it on yourself, and sometimes it's just random. And you deal with it or you don't, and that's it. Maybe I'm cynical, but I probably earn that. I didn't disagree with her. How could I? I... Again, I just decided it was best to change the subject. Carrie and I talked for a while. She was very straightforward and precise, and you could tell that she had in fact done this before, probably more than just a few times. Here's a recap of what she said. Carrie woke up at 5.30 a.m. She got dressed, and she went for a run. Cole was sleeping when she left, and he as well as Roxy were sleeping when she got back. This next part is something that she had not told the police, 
She and Cole had showered together, and well, Carrie told me I was allowed to say this, and I wouldn't normally, but it seems like this might be important, or telling, or maybe it's nothing. Carrie and Cole made love on the morning when he left. She said it was his idea, but he wasn't persistent. It was something natural, and at the time, Carrie thought nothing of it. After the shower, Carrie made breakfast, toast for herself, some frozen waffles for Roxy, and a bowl of cereal for Cole. After breakfast, Carrie went upstairs to get ready. Sometime after 8 o'clock, Cole came upstairs, said goodbye, and left. According to Carrie, that was the last time she ever saw or talked to Cole. The rest of her day was pretty normal. She prepped Roxy for school, drove her, went to work, came home, made dinner, and the rest we sort of know. We'll get back to Carrie later, but let's take a look at what happened from a police perspective, starting from the very first worried phone call Carrie made about a husband who failed to show up to Tuesday dinner. The first call made to police about Cole Atkins' disappearance occurred at 8.48 a.m. on Wednesday, August 21st. It was made by Carrie when Cole did not come home. The official investigation began the next day. The first people questioned were Carrie Atkins and Roxy Atkins, who of course knew nothing. I've gotten a hold of transcripts of their official interviews, and from what I've gathered, they're both run-of-the-mill, perfect legal police practice. Generic interview questions we've all seen a thousand times in a thousand different cheesy police procedurals in movies and on TV. Carrie talked about where she was that day, their relationship, and Cole's state of mind from her point of view. Roxy, on the other hand, was not a typical interview. But how could it be? Roxy Atkins was barely even seven years old at the time. I'm not going to read you the transcript, partly because it's a hundred pages, but also because there really is no reason to. They interviewed Roxy alone, which was something they requested and something that Carrie seemingly had no problem with. They start off slow and easy, introducing themselves, chatting with her, joking with her, really just making a point to establish a nice and comfortable relationship. This is all normal police procedure, and well, it's smart. The more a kid trusts you, no matter how smart, the more they like you. The more they think you're someone they can talk to without getting in some kind of trouble, the better, really. So that's what they did. And by they, I mean two detectives. A detective Nick Lieb and a detective Marco Clercuzio, both of which worked the majority of the case until, well, it stopped being a matter of importance, according to the EPS. We'll get back to the detectives in a bit, but I want to take a second to focus on some of the things Roxy said during her initial interview. As I said, the interview starts fairly normal. But as the interview dragged on, they were actually pretty harsh on her. I mean, she was only seven. Now, I of course have no way in knowing tone of anything. It's just a lot of words on a lot of pages. But it's not in how they say it. It's more how persistent they are. How unrelenting. They would ask questions like, What was mommy and daddy acting like before school? Were they yelling? Did they seem mad at you? At each other? Were mommy and daddy fighting? Did daddy ever hit mommy? Did daddy ever hit you? Did daddy tell you he was leaving? Did mommy tell you where daddy went? Has mommy mentioned a trip that you guys might be going on soon? All stuff like that. A lot of which is basically asking the same question, did Cole and Carrie have a good and healthy relationship? And if you're going to believe Roxy's answers, which the cops seem to, then they did. I can't seem to find out how long this initial interview took, but there are a lot of questions. 
and when they didn't seem to have any new ones, they would ask the same questions again, to which Roxy gave pretty much the same exact answers. They even asked her if she is lying numerous times throughout the process, but still, Roxy did good. There's no mention of her getting upset or refusing to cooperate or anything of the sort. Most of the interview is basic, yes or no answers, with the occasional long air answer, when Roxy has to explain something like what she did that day or what the last thing she remembered about her father before he went missing. Most of it gives us nothing to point us in the direction that Cole was a bad father or that Roxy's affection towards him was anything else besides complete and total love. Most of it, but not all of it. There was a little exchange that took place near the bottom of page 73, an exchange that, well, here it is. Detective Lieb. Has daddy ever made you upset or made you sad? Think really hard. Maybe there was a time where he hurt your feelings or made you cry. Roxy. Well, there was this one time. Detective Lieb. What did daddy do? Roxy. He was tucking me into bed and he kissed me and hugged me, but not like normal. He gave me more kisses and more hugs. He seemed more sad. So I asked, why are you sad, daddy? Detective Lieb. What did daddy say? Roxy. He said he was thinking about Bobby. Detective Lieb, okay, but what else did Daddy say? Roxy, he said that he missed him and that he would see him soon. He said that my brother loves me and I would maybe get to see him soon too. The detectives ask a few more questions on this subject, but really don't get much out of Roxy. They pressure, but still nothing. And then after a few more questions, they decide that it is enough and they end the interview. Now, for me, that seems like something to stand out. It's something that out of a child's mouth that seems frankly a little jarring, but something that also could mean a number of things. Was Cole planning his suicide and maybe planning to take Roxy with him? Was this just a child's misinterpretation of a very adult emotion? Was he just venting to his daughter? Was he talking about seeing Bobby in his dreams? They were about to get to bed. Maybe he was referencing the fact that they were both going to be sleeping soon, and maybe if they're lucky, they can see Bobby there. I kind of doubt that. It's more likely to me that there was some kind of miscommunication, whether on the part of Roxy or even Cole. It's not just the fact that what she's saying here is kind of bone-chilling. It's not something the detectives seem to even care about. When they do their second and third formal interviews, this isn't even brought up. I am by no means a police investigator, but that seems like something that I would be interested in. But maybe it isn't. Maybe I'm wrong. And they too just chalked it up to a child's simple misunderstanding. More with Roxy in a later episode, but now, I want to keep discussing the investigation. The cops' involvement, their tactics, whether or not they might have missed something, and whether they could have done more. I wasn't the only one who thought that the cops may have missed something. Also felt the investigation was a little lackluster. And while his take on this whole thing feels a tad conspiracy theory-ish to me, and this is something he's fully admitted, I've been working hand in hand with Jamie during this process. He's my window into Cole's life. And as he's lived with this for much longer than I have, I tend to bounce information off him. Here's what he said about the investigation. I'm just gonna jump right in here. Of course. But, uh, where do you think the cops went wrong? What could they have done better? Well, for starters, 
I don't think they took a close enough look at Revolver. Let's just forget for a second that the place was run by a mob family. Their research is shrouded in mystery, and not the cool kind either. More of the evil, what-the-hell-is-behind-the-curtain type of mystery. Okay, I'll bite. What do you think was behind that curtain, then? Now, I've talked to a few people who worked there during that time, and, well, I've heard a few things. Granted, some of the people I talked to may have been, well, completely full of shit. Uh, sorry, can I swear on here? Not really, but we can just edit it out. Well, I've heard everything from short-range nuclear weapons... Wait, so like a nuclear gun? More or less, yeah. But, but that's not it. I've heard everything from shrink rays to time travel. Sure, some of the people I talked to back up the alternative energy engine BS that Cole told us, but come on. You think it's possible that they made some kind of huge breakthrough, or invented some kind of crazy science fiction-like technology? Oh yeah. Then why keep it hidden? What's the point then of all that work? All that secrecy? I'm not sure. I wish I did, but there's a lot involved here that I can't quite figure out. Okay, well, what about the detectives? Do you think they were competent, or...? Yeah, hey, they were alright. I can't really blame them. There's only so much time you can spend without collecting sufficient evidence before giving up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just wished that they would have pushed a little bit more, a little further, and maybe, well, maybe they'd have some closure. Jamie's wild theories aside, it's obvious he cares about the case and finding out what happened to his friend. You can hear it in his voice, yes, but it's also written all over his face. The look of someone that has also dealt with this irresolvable pain for nearly two decades. There will be more with Jamie in future episodes, but for now, let's get back to the investigation. After the police interviewed the family, the detectives then went to Cole Atkins' place of work, Revolver Industries. They started by interviewing those closest to Cole, the people he worked with and socialized with daily. They expanded to include those who had come in contact with him on the day he disappeared. That's when they talked to Martin Molson, who in our last episode gave us a little tidbit about a missing parking lot security camera footage. Footage that could help figure out what Cole Atkins was doing during a mysterious 23 minutes the day he went missing. They talked to Ronnie Truffaut, the owner and CEO of Revolver. Though nowhere does it say they talked to Ronnie's crime boss sister, Jasper. They talked to Cole's friends, including Jamie. They talked to everyone who knew Cole, even a little bit. But no one had anything to say that the cops found important or interesting. But some of the claims, like Martin Molson's, were that things at Revolver weren't quite as kosher as it may have seemed. There were reports that Revolver was a tight ship, both in the sense that it was run extremely strict and efficiently. All employees were forced to sign comprehensive NDAs. Certain employees, like the security or cleaning staff, were banned from entering certain rooms. Reports of people being fired for seemingly no reason, Ronnie Truffaut, the boss, had been seen in numerous screaming matches more than a few times. I'm sorry, but even with my little research as an investigator, I was able to find out information about Revolver that feels fishy. Why wasn't this looked at too? Or maybe it was, and the cops found nothing more than a strict work environment. Either way, what the hell was going on there? And what did the police think about this shady little company? Or just the disappearance of Cole Atkins in general? I wanted to find out, so I went right to the source. 
I decided that I needed to talk to someone who was familiar with this case on a professional level, so I managed to get in contact with the lead investigator, Nicholas Lieb. Here's what he had to say about Revolver, about the case, and about Cole Atkins. Hey, thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. Uh, how are you doing? Let me just say that Detective Lieb is not who I expected him to be. I'm not sure why, but I sort of picture like a rough-and-tumble street cop with basset hound eyes. The kind of cop you see on TV that survives on a diet of coffee and cigarettes and booze. But really, he's pretty much the opposite of that. Lieb has a quiet face. He's a bigger guy, clean-cut, and very polite. I found him completely engrossing, like I could talk to him for hours. He's not the kind of guy you'd picture being an investigator on a missing persons case. We chatted for a while before I brought up the case. So would you be able to tell me about the case, about Cole Atkins and your investigation? Yeah, for sure. Uh, what kind of info are you looking for? Anything specific? How about we just start from the beginning? Okay. Um, first, I'd ask, what do you know about the process of uh, how the police operate during a missing persons case? Oh, well, I know a bit. Let's just act as if I know absolutely nothing, and that might be easiest. Okay. Well, uh, to begin with, when a person is reported missing, um, we put a constable in charge of the case initially. Uh, he does a preliminary search of the house or other residents. You'd be surprised how often, especially in the case of a child or the elderly, they're simply found hiding in the home in a closet or other small space. Once the search is completed, the constable will conduct an interview, asking the loved ones possible places the missing person might be. He'll then go and check the places the family could think of, as well as hospitals or other institutions. Uh, we leave a picture with transit officers and anyone else the constable deems necessary just to get awareness of the subject out there. After about 12 hours, this information goes to the media to help get more information out there and get the public's help in finding the individual. Uh, if after a few days no new information is acquired or information is acquired that points the police in a direction, makes this seem like it might be a legitimate missing person or possibly foul play, it gets passed on to a different department and that's where it would usually land on my desk. So how many days until a special investigation unit gets put on the case? Two? Three? Usually about three, yeah. Isn't that like a long time? I mean, isn't the first 48 hours the most crucial? It is. What if it's a child or something? In 48 hours, God knows what could happen. Which is why we have different protocols if it's a child or an elderly person. Oh, okay. If it's a child or someone unable to take care of themselves fully, uh, that whole process goes into warp drive. But because this particular case was a full-grown adult who had no past or prior criminal activity or drug abuse or mental instability, um, it's more reasonable to assume that he left under his own volition. But, of course, that's not always the case. And it wasn't the case with Cole Atkins, was it? No. All right, why don't we start from the beginning, from when the case landed on your desk, as you said. Well, the first thing that I do is a clean sweep of the missing person's home and an interview with the family, basically a redux of what the previous constable would have done. Why? Are you afraid whoever it was didn't do a competent job? No, not at all. I never question the validity of another member's work. It's more about me and how I like to do things. Not to mention, people do tend to remember things a little better after they've had a chance for the initial shock to wear off. Uh, it gives them time to think more clearly. So my partner and I went to... That's Detective Clarcuzio, right? Yes. Um, now, after we thoroughly interviewed the family, we started to retrace what happened on the day of the disappearance. Anyone who would have had contact with them on that day or anyone that claims to have seen them. 
Can you talk to me about the Cole Atkins case specifically, about what your thoughts were during the investigation? We talked to a lot of people, and we were extremely thorough in every aspect of the investigation. I'll be honest, I felt at the time that he had just left. There was no evidence that he was harmed or that someone had reason to harm him, not then, anyway. But why leave his car in the parking lot? How can he slip away and never access his bank account? Something had to have happened, and someone had to know something, and that's what made this particular case so infuriating. Maybe he had, like, an accomplice? We looked into that. It just didn't feel plausible. No one had even the slightest idea that Atkins was leaving that day, and any person that did was most likely an enemy of his, not an accomplice. I want to take a second to talk about a portion of the interview you conducted with Cole Atkins' daughter, Roxanne Atkins. Okay. You remember the interview? I remember being present for it as a matter of what was said during the interview. Well, well, I have a transcript of it. Oh, you do? Yeah, I requested it and they said it was fine. All right, lay it on me. Okay, the passage I'm speaking of is an exchange yourself and your partner had with a seven-year-old Roxy Atkins. Okay. In this passage, you asked her whether or not her father had ever made her upset, something you asked her more than once in the interview, but this time she answered different. And what she said was that her father told her he was thinking about their deceased son, Bobby. You guys were aware of Bobby, right? Yes. She also said that Cole, her father, said that both of them might be able to see Bobby soon. To tell you the truth, I don't remember her saying that, but if it's in the transcripts, she probably did. And maybe... It wasn't something I caught at the time, nor was it something I disregarded. But if he did commit suicide, then he did so in a way that left no trail and no evidence. He had a good point. If Cole had done that, wouldn't they have found the body? It seems pretty tough to pull off something like that without leaving anything behind. And besides, why go to that much effort to hide the fact? I wasn't fully satisfied, but still, I decided to move the conversation along. What about Revolver and the Truffauts? Were they ever considered suspects or persons of interest? Yeah, that was, for a while, the crux of our investigation, actually. Uh, It seemed way too perfect that Jasper was linked to this disappearance, no matter how far removed she supposedly was from Revolver. And what about the employee reports that they were scared and that Revolver itself was run like a prison rather than a place of employment? Well, having been there myself and seen the inner workings of that place, I think those reports were quite exaggerated. Um, The place was not run like a typical scientific research center, true, but how many places like that have a known criminal at the helm? It wasn't the Truffaut family that I was worried about anyways. They might not have been strong suspects, but Revolver was not devoid of useful information. It provided us with our prime suspect. Who was that? Sylvester Woods. Sylvester Woods is a name that appears more than a few times in a variety of evidence documents throughout the case. I asked Detective Lieb as to why he felt so strongly that Woods was involved. Woods was a co-worker who worked closely with Cole Atkins. He was a loner, no real family, and he was outwardly jealous of Cole's success. Cole was the head of the research department, and Woods hated that. Not to mention, Woods was a tech specialist. He virtually designed Revolver's security system which means he had access to the The lost security footage. Exactly. He had motive. He most likely had opportunity. Unfortunately, we were unable to acquire any more evidence than that. Whether he had something to do with Atkins' disappearance or not, both Coos and I felt that he was hiding something. If only we knew what. 
I find it interesting that even back then, they suspected foul play, and still nothing came out of it. How is it possible that there was no evidence of anything? I felt Leib's frustration, and this is coming from a man who was far and removed from this case as someone who worked on it could be. He told me himself that he hadn't really thought of it in a long while, and that that's sort of how it goes. Sometimes you crack them, and sometimes these things just float away, becoming more and more out of reach with each passing day. I refused to let this case slip away. I needed to dig deeper, and I knew, like Detective Lieb knew, that Sylvester Woods was the key to this case. I needed to find him, and I needed to talk to him. And I did. Next time on Broadcast Mysteries. I mean, he's a bit odd, which is probably why the police were so interested in him. Then why did they need him gone, if not for drugs? There wasn't trust there. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach, music by Michael Feen, logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski, and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing. Special thanks to Vince Smuda, Jason Vandeviver, Mackenzie Leap, Kevin Martin, The Lobby Video Store, Will Pfeiffer, Nuno Soler, and Sarah Pullen. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at BC Mysteries, on Facebook and Instagram at Broadcast Mysteries, or you can email us at broadcastmysteries at gmail.com. Follow us or visit our website at broadcastmysteries.com for details.